Hi, I'm Melanie. And I'm Justin. And we're a couple of counselors. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, coming in today with episode four and part two of all things attachment because we want to talk more about it if we're being fully honest. Yeah, uh, a lot to say. A lot to say. And also because we did get some feedback about people wanting to hear more about specific parts of what we talked about. So we're going to jump into that today. Do you have anything to add before we start? Yeah, just continue to give us feedback. You can find us on Instagram at a couple of counselors, and we'd love to hear more about what you're connecting with and what would be helpful to to go deeper. Yeah, that's great. So one of the pieces of feedback we got was around feeling like the conversation started like kind of halfway through. And I, I think that refers to having, you know, maybe a little bit more of a baseline understanding of what attachment theory really even is. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about without getting too complicated, I want to talk about the specific um, ways in which someone's attachment shows up in their adult life individually. And here we're talking about their ability to self-regulate. So Mel, you know that basically anybody who comes into therapy, at least part of what they want to do is they want to work on their self-regulation skills. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're often talking about emotion regulation, being able to manage their anger or their anxiety or, you know, uh, symptoms of depression or dissociation. Mm-hmm. But there's also regulation goes further into talking about if people are struggling with sleep or they're struggling with eating or they're struggling with any ways in which we regulate our body throughout mm-hmm. the day. So I just want to say very quickly that that is often an attachment related issue. Um, there's a there's this term co-regulation, which is ultimately what the primary caregiver does for the child throughout um, throughout development. So when the child's upset, the caregiver shows up, co-regulates with the child, helps the baby calm down. When the child is happy, the caregiver joins in the happiness and lets the kid know that they can see their internal state and they're with them. And it's what they call upregulating positive emotions. So there's this dance that the caregiver and the child are always doing, which is, which is called co-regulation. And, you know, over, overly simplistic, but that process ultimately leads to an adult who can self-regulate. So one of the beautiful parts about the therapeutic relationship is when you have someone who profoundly struggles with self-regulation and you give them a safe space and you support them in co-regulating, then you're, you're basically building that process again to help them with self-regulation. So I just want to identify that, uh, that a, attachment impacts an adult's ability to self-regulate it if it's disrupted. Yeah. And what you're referencing is also the ability to have, to practice this skill, whether it's with a therapist or mm-hmm. with a, a positive support in order to have that translate back to your ability to do it with yourself and other people. So yeah. these are transferable skills. And yeah. if the concept of regulation is also foreign it's just the ability to think and feel at the same time. Um, and one framework that has helped me understand it and, and unpack it more is the window of tolerance. So thinking of it like in the center is the ability to think and feel. It's where we feel calm and connected and curious and open. Social. Social, yeah. right? And then we can either be overactive and hyper aroused or underactive in hypo aroused. So starting with the you know, going above the window. So we, we bust out of the window above it into hyper arousal and that's anxiety, anger, irritability, 
all the things where we, that felt sense of tightness and restlessness and um, elevated heart rate, sweaty palms, chest constriction. And then we could go underneath the window of tolerance, hypoarousal, depression, numbness, dissociation, Mm -hmm. That is, you know, lethargy, which is basically the sleepiness. There are all these ways in which it shows up. And what we need, even from a body sense, to get back in the middle is going to vary depending on are we hyperactive or hypoactive in that way. Um, So there are strategies and things we naturally do. And we could talk a little bit more about that. Um, But in relationship, we also are impacted by how another person is presenting. Mm -hmm. An example I typically use is we all know when somebody is angry, even if they never say that they're angry, like our body's already responding, Mm -hmm. that we're we're meeting or making space for that anger in some way. And the same is true for other emotions. Yeah. Yeah, and likewise, our bodies know very much when we're in the presence of somebody who's hypo-aroused and disconnected and Mm -hmm. not there. And sometimes that can be just as painful feeling like someone's not connecting with us in that way. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a ton to say about the window of tolerance. I think just to, to simplify, you know, these are arousal states that all people experience, hyperarousal being in this window, hypoarousal, but the swings are tend to be greater for people who've experienced trauma and who who are engaging in the world with a, a different type of nervous system. So, just to name a common one, people frequently identify experiencing anxiety and anger and hyperarousal and then crashing into the mm. sense of feeling disconnected and numb. Um, so if you're familiar with these swings, I think that the, the framework is helpful because it, it gives you a way to think about what does my body need right now? Do I need more energy, more connection? Do I need maybe less connection, be by myself and breathe and settle back down in? Um, and I think the last thing I want to say about the window, since you mentioned it, Mel, is this is a very helpful framework for substance use mm. because a lot of people spend spend their time getting into the window with substances, yep. right? So you have somebody who struggles with anxiety, for example. What's one of the most common substances of choice for that person? It's alcohol because it brings them mm. down into the, the window. Mm. You have people who struggle with numbness and dissociation and they may be using you know, cocaine or things that are bringing their mood up um, to help but but they're all efforts to regulate, right? It's, yeah. They're just trying to get there with something and, and often folks use substances. Yeah, I would say the same for disordered eating yeah. where restriction or, or binging, purging, they all do things that help move into mm. one direction or another. And that process of finding the sweet spot that right in the middle, mm. right? Um, it, it tends to be more fleeting when we're looking externally and if we can find ways internally, they might not work as fast, but they can endure a bit better uh, yeah. without the the side effects. Yeah. Yes. And so the reason to, to you know, th- think about this window of tolerance, I think, in terms of what we're talking about today with attachment is we're going to talk more about rupture and repair. Mm-hmm. And you can't do a repair. People cannot do repairs. Um, when they're hyper-aroused or hypo-aroused. They have to be somewhere within the window, both parties, so that there could be a connection made. And just to reiterate what the rupture and repair process is, not only is there a connection and an understanding of what just happened that didn't feel good, whether it was an argument or, you know, something smaller or something bigger, 
Um, but there's also the sharing of the internal experiences around that. So okay. it's not just, I'm sorry I yelled. It's when I got home today, I was overwhelmed from work. I was feeling hot. I was feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. I was immediately triggered by something, you know, by the kids screaming. Yeah. And I spoke to you in a way that I really shouldn't have. And I'm sorry, right? It's, it's more detailed. It's, it's mm-hmm. this was my internal experience. Um, not as an excuse, but as an explanation, because the goal yeah. is that you, you know, that you know me better when, when we're done with this. Mm-hmm. Watching the girls today. So we have a almost three-year-old and a almost five and a half-year-old. They're young enough that the half a year, I think, still matters. Um, And they were physical with one another. And the older one went over and and hugged the younger one. And they were able to hold each other for a moment. And it wasn't the sorry. It was the, the vulnerability and the openness and the embrace. And the hugs, I think, are so important, you know, not just for oxytocin, but heart to heart contact and mm. just to, a moment of that shared, like we're moving from using our body to harm one another to using our body to hold one another. And I think mm. that's an example of a nonverbal repair that's very age appropriate for yeah. some some toddler preschoolers. But, um, you know, just an example of rupture and repair to to get some clarity to the concept. Yeah. For sure. And yeah, one more example from a child perspective with parenting is I think what we try to do is we try to do more than I'm sorry, right? If we, if we feel like we raised our voices around the kids or if, you Mm -hmm. know, we did something, we try to do more than I'm sorry. We try to do a, this is what was happening for daddy. You know, daddy just got scared when you ran out toward the road. The reason I raised my voice and grabbed your arm is because I was afraid, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's this, uh, this sharing of internal experiences at an age-appropriate level from a parenting perspective is, is super helpful. Yeah, not because we think they're going to be like, oh, you're sad, I'm sorry, yes. but because we want them to, we, we're trying to model the mm-hmm. experience of knowing what's going on for us and being able to explain it in a way that's non-judgmental, that's not designed for the other person to then carry and do something about, but more of um, an an owning of what's going on for us. Yeah, that's a that's a huge point, right? Because there's ways in which um, parents use emotions in manipulative ways if they're really if they're you know really struggling with um, their own kind of emotional intelligence. But I I think one final thing I want to say in the parenting thing before we talk about um, relationships is. That sharing, modeling is the right word because one of the things that I've had to remind myself over and over again as a parent, because this is my own individual work, is that it's not bad to show emotion in front of your children. I had this problem for so long Mm -hmm. when I would get angry in the presence of the children, I would have deep shame around it. Like, how can you be angry, you know, with your child who's two or three or even in the presence of them? Like, I would feel shame that that I was experiencing anger and I've had a lot of support in this, um, but just to remind me that, you know, I'm trying to practice what I preach. The emotion is not the problem. You're, there is no problem, the, but the emotion is not a problem. Your response is what matters. So when I say I'm angry and I model how one manages anger, then I'm actually doing something extremely important for them mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm helping expand their range of what they understand in terms of emotions and ultimately what they'll be able to tolerate. And we'll get into that 
affective mm-hmm. tolerance is a huge thing. Basically, you know, what, what can you stand feeling and what can you stand being in the presence of? Yeah. And you expand that for your kids when you share your emotions and you model how to handle them appropriately. And I have to remind myself that over and over again. Yeah. Um, so rupture and repair is a framework. A rupture is any time that something happens in a relationship that doesn't feel good from as small as, you know, you've been kind of distant tonight to as big as um, an infidelity or something within a relationship. There's a rupture. Something happens that's not good. And then the repair needs to happen. And the first thing I want to say, because it's in my mind after working with couples, uh, some of the couples work I was doing last week even, is that the speed of the repair is important. Mm. And you can talk about the regulation, Mel, and, and how important that is. And obviously there's t- there needs to be time for regulation to occur. But, the, but I see so often where couples talk about an issue that happened and I, I ask them when the repair came and they're like the next day. And the reason that matters is because the stories get bigger and bigger the longer you leave the rupture. Yeah. And that's the main thing that I want to say is that there's the rupture and in the interim before the repair, each party has their own story about just what just happened. You know, my partner was doing this because they think this of me and they're doing this and they're always doing this, right? And the stories get bigger and bigger. And the main purpose of the repair is to quiet the stories. Because if you tell me, Mel, exactly how you're feeling and what happened for you, mm-hmm. then now I know. I don't have to make any more stories about why you just did what you did. Yeah. And if we always just knew how to say that, then it would be a lot easier to be in relationships. Yeah. But usually I'm, for example, just feeling upset and dysregulated. And I mm-hmm. tend to go to hyper arousal, so above the window, mm-hmm. and I'm feeling angry or I'm feeling invalidated or whatever it might be. And at the moment, I'm seeing you know the blame of you know, externalizing or discharging discomfort onto someone or something, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm seeing... The, uh, I'm having the fight or flight response where it's like, get me out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to feel that and have access to the prefrontal cortex. I've moved out of thinking and feeling yeah. by the time I've noticed. So part of this is learning the earlier warning signs. So we still have contact to be able to say that. Yes. But for most of us, we're starting like already like, oh, I know I'm upset and it, it's every you know, someone else's fault or something else. Yeah. Right. Um, and a lot harder to put that in a way that doesn't you know, raise defenses. Yeah. So that's why to your point, Mel, whenever it happens that the insight comes that there's this rupture, the first step is to separate and regulate. Mm-hmm. Like I think of this as damage control is because yeah. you're, the communication that's going to happen while one or both parties is dysregulated is almost certainly going to be at, at best, it's going to be not productive. And at worst, it's going to be very hurtful. Mm-hmm. And most people listening to this will know having somebody said something to them that just cuts to the core. Maybe they've said something to someone else that they knew, like, this is the thing that is going to break you down. Mm-hmm. Because to your point, when we're really dysregulated, we like to blame. We like to, it's a it's a unfortunate uh, part of our psychology, we like to discharge that pain mm-hmm. by cutting others down sometimes. So once it's recognized that there's rupture has occurred and there's dysregulation within the relationship, the first step is to separate and to regulate so that you can come back together and have that repair in the window. Yep. Yeah. And it's hard 
well, a few things. One is the story I'm telling myself. So I think we should acknowledge that right now. So we're yeah. referencing Brene Brown. And it's this idea of having a verbal cue to be able to say, like, when I say to Justin, the story I'm telling myself is I have now packaged, like, what I'm about to say is the assumptions that I'm making and mm-hmm. I'm looking to reality test. I'm in a vulnerable spot. Yeah. Be kind to me. Totally. Right? Like, all of that is said by just saying the story I'm telling myself. Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. So the two huge things to take from it from my perspective are that it takes ownership for the crap that is swirling around in our own heads, Mm -hmm. right? Because again, what people often do is they have these stories that are getting bigger and bigger and then they just kind of vomit them onto the partner. Like this must be true or this is what's happening. When you say this, when I say, I'll speak for myself, when I say the story I'm telling myself to you, I'm immediately taking ownership for whatever mess I'm about to tell you (laughs) saying, this is my own story. This is, you know, my own doing. I'm, I'm implicitly saying it's probably not true to your point. I want to reality test it. Yeah. Do you have a recent example? I'm trying to think of a recent example. I mean, it's often the story telling myself is that you're annoyed with me or that you're mad or something. That's yeah. I, I think of one that you, uh, did with me this was a while ago and, and I've actually given this as, as an example before um, but where I come down in the morning and I might say have the kids eaten mm-hmm. and I realized after a few times that that was kind of a triggering question for you and then one morning you said to me the story I'm telling myself is that you think that I'm like not feeding the kids in the morning yeah so I had no idea that you were taking that question which from my perspective was have they eaten yet if they haven't I'll start making breakfast but that you were hearing that as like, as an accusation, like, have you fed them, you know? Yeah. And it, it cuts to my core, like why that question moves me out of the window of tolerance is because I struggle to remember that other people are hungry, right? <laughs> like I, I have, you know, poor executive functioning at times and they always eat, I always feed them, but there, it is hard sometimes for me to just to have that signal go off and they're I don't know I just think it's a deficit I see in myself mm-hmm. and it's something that I think Justin does really well where he's able to he's always been the like schedule routine mm-hmm. uh, follower and it just is a growing edge for me and so it, it's it feels more raw yeah, and I think the, the I appreciate you being vulnerable and, and saying that. <laughs> I think I think it's a perfect example of how this works, right? Is because yeah. the story that you're telling yourself is because it hits a nerve with you. Right. And that's the way it always is. If the story that we start spinning is a negative one and is a defensive one, it's because there's something that that's triggering us in that moment. Um and saying the story I'm telling myself is this is a way of kind of owning of owning that that is your trigger. But also wanting to say, you know, I this is still happening for me, regardless of whether it's true or it's kind of a wild story I've made up. It is my experience right now, and I want you to know it, and I want to talk through it with you. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a way of approaching someone honestly, taking ownership, and also putting their defenses down. Mm-hmm. Because when you say to me the story I'm telling myself, I don't get tight. You know, mm-hmm. my chest doesn't cave in. I'm not like what I'm, what's coming. I'm like I'm curious. I'm like, what is the story you're telling yourself? Yep. And that is such an important part of communication in general is when you initiate communication with someone, 
their chest should open, right? They should they should experience expansion. Ideally, yes. Ideally, yeah. I'm you're always better with the judgmental language, but if yeah. you want it to be effective, they need yeah. to experience expansion. If they experience constriction, you will get defense back. Yeah. That's I, all. I'm a word police when it comes to the word should because should is shame-based and yes. we can move it to could and um, have a lot more of that opening instead of constriction. Good point. Very good point. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But I do think that's an important communication point and it's global. It's, it's yep. just general that if a person will tense up when you start engaging with them, then that approach will not be helpful because they'll only know how to be defensive. Yeah. The example I give is if two people are coming from a pretty regulated place, think of it like two garage doors that are open and you're trying to send messages between. As Mm. soon as the defensive language, the blaming, the you statements, you you did this, you did that, Mm. it's like that garage door is closing. You only have seconds before you can deliver any more information. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we come from a place of what am I working on? What is important to me? Not as a, you know, egotistical, I'm only thinking about myself, but the ownership responsibility, cleaning my side of the street, Mm. I'm presenting that to you. You're presenting your side of the street to me and we are meeting in the middle. Mm -hmm. There's mutuality, there's respect, there's um, an effort to more clearly see what's happening Mm -hmm. as opposed to I want you to listen to my perspective and the other person wants their perspective to be represented and it it feels almost like um, winning. And that that paradigm of winning and who is right Mm. is so toxic. It's corrosive to relationships because nobody is winning, Mm -hmm. right? The the sentence of, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? Um, I I think is really important to remember that if we are in, if we catch ourselves trying to be right, Mm. then we are, we are furthering the rupture. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, um, yeah, it's funny when you just said that. I just I immediately thought of the old school advice within within marriage too of like happy wife, happy life Ugh. because th- this idea of like, <laughs> of whichever partner, right? That, yeah, yeah. that they should kind of forego all of their internal experiences in order to make the other person happy. Uh-huh. And that was you know that was a piece of like sound. And my hand is making quotes right yeah, now. The air quotes of, of sound advice for a long time, which mm-hmm. is wild to think about because. Just to be clear, it's the exact opposite of what we're talking about. Right? <laughs> yes. Like, that one person's kind of internal experience gets full and preferences and everything gets full um, stock and the other person just has to submit effectively. <laughs> yeah. We are not recommending that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So the, the rupture and repair process is, just to reiterate, there's any type of rupture in the relationship there's an acknowledgement that something doesn't feel great. Space is taken so that both parties can regulate. And then there's a full sharing of the internal experiences of both people at the time of the rupture and owning of any mistakes made, apologies, etc. And the main takeaway that I, that I want to harp on for this is that this decreases the stories that you tell within the relationship. Mm-hmm. The quicker you can repair effectively, the less time you have to create damaging stories about the other person's intentions, motivations, about the relationship itself. I mean, how frequently do people say things like, do I even, you know, if you let the story spin for a day, maybe on the second day you're saying, do I even want to be in this relationship? Mm -hmm. And you've gone from a small argument to 
you know, this existential crisis about the relationship really all on your own often because you're not, oftentimes people are talking about not even engaging with their partner during this period, right? They're kind yeah. of, they're, they're giving them the silent treatment or whatever. So in, in two days on your own, in your own head, you've gone from an argument to do I want this relationship? And that's just kind of an extreme example of how the stories can be so significant. But here's another piece of that. You could be experiencing similar types of rupture over and over again. Mm. And so it's the fifth time it's happened. It's the 10th time this similar chord has been struck. Mm. And the question of do I want to be in the relationship is a valid one at that point. But what is missing is that those ruptures are not being repaired in between. Mm -hmm. And so it's continuing to fracture and the the fracture is getting larger and larger instead of the repair happening and the learning, the social emotional learning that can happen. Because if I don't truly understand, right, going back to the, you know, did I feed the kids in the morning example of if Justin doesn't truly understand what's coming up for me, he has no uh, he, that's not true. He doesn't have no, but he has less of an opportunity to make an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Like I could go years of my life with that question being asked and yeah. me hold resentment or me it, or my frustration come out sideways, which it has in the past. Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't start with the story and telling myself yeah. I, you know, previously would be like, well, why don't you get up and feed them yourself? Right. Yeah. A very kind, supportive wife <laughs> language there. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, what, what we're doing then is having opportunities for repairs to happen in between and adjusted behavior changes. So then you have a more accurate picture of what am I looking at? Because if that continues to happen with the opportunities for social and emotional learning, then you have a much clearer sense of what the status of the relationship is and can be. Yeah. That's such an important point, Mel, because, well, first of all, of course, there are times that is this relationship healthy and, you know, do I want to be in this relationship is a legitimate question. Yeah. That's the first thing. But but I think just to summarize what I think you're saying, Mel, that is not the question to ask if, if, the part, if your partner does not know why you're upset. Mm-hmm. If your partner does not know why you're upset, the first question to ask is, how do I tell my partner this? And then if over and over again, you're very clear about your your boundaries, the way you like to be spoken to or treated, and the partner fully understands that and continues to cross that boundary, then we have a different thing. But I say, I mean, the most common question I ask in couples counseling is, you know, when someone says something to me is, have you told the other person that? And often it's no. And I go, all right, let's start there. (laughs) Let's start with making sure they know, right? (laughs) And I run into and have experienced myself. So if you can relate to this, you are not alone. The it's super obvious. Mm. Of course they would know that. Yes. Or I treat them a certain way and I would hope that they would treat me that way mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So that um, the, it's super obvious. We need to make our relationships clear even though it seems obvious. Mm-hmm. Right? Like yeah. that is one way to eliminate so much suffering. I would say. And then the other thing is I treat someone a certain way and therefore in a in a relationship that's mutual, I'd expect them to treat me a certain way too. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening is relationship dynamics tend to, they tend to have one person doing and the other person receiving. Mm. Um, and rarely is it 
50-50 unless there's work and intention. The automatic patterns of like giving and giving and giving, the other person taking and taking and taking. Yeah. It's not like the person that's been taking wakes up the next day and they're like, well, for the last three weeks I've been receiving, so let me start giving mm-hmm. in terms of attention or thoughtfulness or whatever it may be. They're yeah. benefiting from the current setup and it's very rare that they would do something that's not in their individual needs interest. Um, it, it needs to be elevated as an important boundary and relationship need in order yeah. for the person to organically make that change. Yeah, for sure. It needs to be stated explicitly. I think, was it Bowlby who said that which can't be expressed to the mother can't be expressed to the self? Sure. Sounds I, good. I think that was Bowlby. But, um, <laughs> you know, the idea being that oftentimes if we don't say something out loud to the person, if we don't really show them our truth, then it's not even registering for us. Mm-hmm. So it's part of that process is that it, it helps us understand ourselves too. But I think your point, Mel, is super important, which is Thank you. People often, people often think they should know this. Mm-hmm. And maybe they should, but it, maybe they don't. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it really is just like making, being really granular too. Not just I'm upset, but I'm upset right now because of this specific thing. This thing is hurtful to me. You know, oftentimes people speak generally like that you hurt my feelings or you did this. And I think getting, I think Brene Brown actually is writing a book about this right now. I just, just released one about emotional granularity and the idea of getting really into Mm. the minutia of how you feel, not just that you feel bad or good, but really specifically how you feel and why you feel that way. And I think that that's a big part of the repair, that internal experience sharing. And to circle back with a point from the beginning, and then we'll wrap up because I know we want to keep our podcast around a half hour, is just when we did not experience our needs, you know, when our needs were not met as a child for whatever reason, or if they weren't met consistently or above the one-third threshold of good enough parenting, it in it can be reactivated in a, adult relationships when things feel obvious and they're not met you know when needs feel obvious and they're not met because it in some ways is that attachment wound being reopened Mm -hmm. of it's obvious as a child that I need connection and I need um, someone to be in my world and I didn't get that and Mm -hmm. now in adulthood it's obvious that i need connection and someone to care genuinely and demonstrate that and it not happen and it hurts yeah i swear i'm not just saying this that's such a good point is what I'm <laughs> I, think, the, I think we should keep, do a tally of it's such a good point i think you keep making really good points and i think maybe the <laughs> last thing that i want to say because because i am aware that i may be coming across with this this sense of like these are the things that you can do that will be helpful without a full appreciation of how difficult it can be. Mm-hmm. And what you just said really, really hit home for me around that because when I work with folks with attachment wounds, right? Mm-hmm. This disrupted attachment, what they describe in the presence of interpersonal distress is a visceral aching, mm-hmm. you know, a pain, a crushing in their chest, their, their belly feeling like it's, it's just gonna explode. Like these attachment wounds actually show up in the body So I think the final thing that I want to say is that when you work toward earned or learned secure attachment, you are going to experience some physical discomfort in these moments of Mm. of disrupted attachment. And I, first of all, I want to acknowledge that that is not an easy thing to experience. Mm -hmm. And I think I just want to, I just want to 
talk about the importance of learning to be with and notice that process, let it dissipate, and then engage in the behavior that you know will be helpful. Mm-hmm. Because, because what, is, what is easier and is more common is that people are reacting to that visceral experience. Yep. Um, which, you know, in ways that are damaging to their relationships. But it, you really helped me want to pull back here and acknowledge how painful that is for people again at a visceral level yep. when there are these in, these interpersonal issues um so if that if you are somebody who has that who has you know those physical experiences when there's distress within relationships um i would encourage you to just to see if you can just notice and be with um and not react right away to it and find someone safe enough to practice with yeah. If you're thinking of, okay, this is the relationship I want to work on, try not to start there because usually mm-hmm. that is the one that is closest to your heart and most vulnerable. And if you can start with a friendship or a mentor or something, uh, it can go a long way. Yeah. So thank you for making it to this point and we will continue to unpack these topics and we'll see you soon. All right. See ya. Thank you. Take care.